Kia ora koutou and welcome. I am Dr Morgan Edwards, the New Zealand Society of Anesthetists President, and it is a pleasure to host the NZSA's podcast. Whether you are at work, in your office, on your commute, or your daily walk or run, we really hope you find it an insightful and informative listen. Now, holding a presidency during the past two years provided significantly more challenges than anyone could have anticipated. Our guest for this episode of New Zealand Anesthesia, Dr. Vanessa Beavis, lived through just that, drawing on her leadership skills and experience to navigate through. Dr. Beavis is the immediate past president of ANSCA and is a specialist anesthetist in Tamaki Makoto. Her clinical interests include perioperative medicine and liver transplant anesthesia. Prior to her role as ANSCA president, she was the director of perioperative services at Auckland City Hospital, a role that she stepped back from to focus on her presidency in 2020. Moving to Aotearoa in 1993 from South Africa, where she completed her training, Vanessa has made her mark in Aotearoa and Australia's anesthesia community, holding various leadership roles within ANSCA, including Chair of the Training Accreditation Committee, Chair of the Perioperative Medicine Steering Committee, ANSCA Council Representative on the FPM Board, and Founding Chair of the Anesthetist and Leadership Special Interest Group. It is a pleasure to be able to sit down with Vanessa to talk leadership and share her experiences. Vanessa, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Kia ora Morgan, it's a very great pleasure to be here, thank you. So you are probably one of the busiest people in all of anaesthesia and certainly have been over the last few years. What are you doing these days? Well, I'm uh, I'm now able to go back to indulge my my curiosity uh, more in a more clinical area. Um, you know, I'm doing a whole lot more clinical than I was before, but that's really good because my my main gig these days is really perioperative medicine, and so it means I can just focus my attention a little bit more into that particular area of practice. So, yep, I'm doing that, and of course the college is still keeping me very, very busy. I am still a member of council. I'm having had to stand for mm-hmm. re-election halfway through my term. So, yep, the college keeps me busy, and now travel's opened up. I haven't seen my son for three years, and my little twin granddaughters who are seven next month so yeah that'll be really good Um, and where are they based they are in sweden oh how incredible i know so far away isn't it (laughs) couldn't be further if we tried but anyway yeah never mind um and so what was your journey towards becoming the president of the college um, you know, Morgan, for me, it was almost serendipitous, really. I never I never sort of sat down 20 years ago and thought, oh, you know what, I'm no, I, I want to be president of the college. But one thing, when, because, you know, as you probably know, I did immigrate here. I was just, I was a fellow when we immigrated and I worked in DCC for six months. And then I got a locum job at Auckland Hospital in anesthesia and then finally a, a permanent job. And one of the things that really struck me was just how amazing New Zealand anaesthetists are, how well-trained they are, how skilled they are, and how well-rounded they are. And I just I just loved that whole thing. And also, I just thought, I, could, I really want to be part of this club. I really want to contribute. And so as soon as I could, I became a fellow of um, ANSCA. And I was... Uh, and then I sort of... I took, I took on the because I'm such a I'm such a control freak. I took on the um, rostering job in the department, which at that <laughs> stage was the the adult department and the pediatric department. Anyway, but that teaches you a lot about people actually being in charge of the roster. 
Um, and so you soon learn how to keep everyone happy because everyone knows the real power in a department is never mind the head of department is actually the rostra because they can make or break people on a on a daily basis. So um, and it kind of keeps them happy if you can be flexible and all the rest of it. So um, so yes, I learned from the best and I then took it on and have handed it on to good people. But so there was that and then the head of department at that time uh, was looking for a deputy and so I put my hand up for that and. He was truly, I don't know if you know David Sage, I uh, don't know if he was around in your time, but he was, one of the, one of the things that um, I admired about him and which I try and do as well is to look and play to people's strengths and to try and encourage them to take on something. So he said to me, Vanessa, you're deputy uh, clinical director now, you need to meet with other people who are deputy, you know, who are in the sort of head of, head of department kind of sphere. And he said, why don't you think about being an examiner for the college? And so for me, that was one of the first uh, sort of entry points into the college. So I became an examiner. And then um, pretty soon after, I became a member of the New Zealand National Committee. And a few years after that, I became um, the chair. But alongside, there were many, many different strands. So I did that. And then I was also part of the, um, now we call it the SIMG um, uh, you know, the, the Specialist International Medical Graduate Vocational Assessment Group for the Medical Council. And it went on and on from there. And then I was elected to council. And so then I um, I was, my first job was as chair of the CPD committee. So I immediately decided to revise it. So I'm terribly sorry, but this new system that we've got, well, it's now just been revised. It's all my fault. Um, but, you know, I couldn't stand the... To me, there was just a whole lot of admin for not much gain, really. Well, uh, you, again, won't know, but there were all these categories and subcategories. I thought, oh, my God, what is this? Couldn't understand. You know, it's too complicated. And New Zealand was ahead of Australia in requiring it. So we had a practice run with New Zealand and then, you know, so there was that job. And then I did training and accreditation chair of that group. And all the while... Um, I just, you know, if people ask me to do stuff, I, I always said yes. Um, I know, I know. There's a lot of, oh no, you should, you should learn to say no. But I never, I never learned to say no. I always said yes to everything because it just opens up so many opportunities. Say yes to everything, and if necessary, delegate it to somebody else. Now you can't delegate the, you know, the actual accountability for it, but the actual work does allow others who are coming up behind you to just ex toe dip and see if they actually like it or not. And then, um, and that's what happened with me and what I've tried to do for others as well. And yep, off we went. There we go. One step after another. Absolutely. So many steps and so many simultaneous steps, it sounds like, as well. But what you're saying is really ringing true from that fantastic women leadership breakfast that we went to recently um, and talking about being a mentor, but also being a sponsor or having a sponsor and what you were saying about David Sage. Um, and it makes me think, you know, reflect on the fact that being a leader is actually an incredible skill, isn't it? Um, you've mentioned David Sage, but, uh, you know, aside from him, is there any, you know, are there any other leaders that have inspired you along the way? Oh, so many, many people. Um, one of the things, it's hard to sort of pick on a particular person. Uh, more recently, though, old Vladimir Vladimir, you know, from Ukraine, um, Zelensky, I just, I thought, you know, everyone thought he was just a joke, a comedian that really was just a nothing. And how he has managed to inspire his country to fight to the bitter end, uh, you know, and pull them all up. Because I, I remember uh, listening to um, Radio New Zealand and 
they um, they were interviewing people in Ukraine just before the war started. It was the Saturday before the the Russians arrived on Monday, and they said, "Oh, everyone, uh, they think everything will be fine." They were sitting around cafes, drinking coffee, and all of that kind of stuff. So to go from nothing, you know, a normal kind of Saturday morning cafe, sitting in the sun with your family and coffee, to where they are now, I think that has taken enormous. Um, leadership actually to get to that point but of course we I don't need such an extreme example I, I've always thought you can learn something from everyone absolutely everyone even if it's how not to do something and so there are many many little snippets um, of people along the way um, that I've that I've learned from I mean Leona Wilson she's a great example of um, just being completely even and insightful and well have you thought about this in such a nice way rather than are you crazy thinking about you know doing what you wanted to do that kind of way of talking um, oh gosh there's so many uh, I, I mean there are many many leaders but the women leaders like Genevieve Golding Kate Leslie as as uh, Lindy Roberts as you know presidents which is sort of role models really in a way um, they were just amazing amazing woman really amazing and everyone's got something to offer and of course my friend Rod Mitchell dear Rod dear Rod um, how do you think you would describe your leadership style uh, my leadership style um, when I when I've you know, formally had it tested and all that kind of stuff. Um, and what I think are sort of aligned, I think I am results focused or results directed. Really, um, I can see the problem and I can. I, I want it to be very clear, but but people focused um, because you can't do a single thing without people, and you can you can try. But particularly for us, when if you're in a leadership role, you really are first among equals. And if you try and say, well, I've got a fabulous title and you're going to do what I say, well, good luck with that. People will put up with it for a very short time, but you'll immediately lose their, you'll lose their hearts and their, uh, the emotional contract that they make with, with you or the organization, whatever it is that you're representing. So um, for me, uh, you know, people, it really is he tangata, he tangata, he tangata. Um, yeah, I think that's... That's, it's, but I'm, I'm also, I'm quite direct usually in, in, um, in what needs to happen and what I want to see happen. Um, yeah. A few years ago, you came out and spoke to my department, Waitemata, at our retreat um, about sort of advice for people who are contemplating going into leadership. Um, and I think you had some really wonderful messages. And I was... Wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing specifically for young anaesthetists any advice you might have for um, young anaesthetists thinking of taking on a leadership role. Um, yes, well, I think I think um, seize any opportunity that you're given. I think that's that's one lesson, um, but not too big. Um, so you, it's all very well to to take on leadership, but you need support people around you. Uh, so somebody needs to help and guide and a go-to person that you can say, hey, what about this? And I've been asked to do that and should I and all the rest. So you need some a confidant as well as perhaps someone who could say, oh, have you thought of, which is kind of different. So so seize the opportunity. Um, I think also in the first few years after becoming a consultant, I do think that um, 
it's important to become confident in your clinical and technical abilities. And I think that's possibly one of the reasons why your brain is just too full of, of that stuff in the beginning and why younger younger anesthetists might not want to take take it on or don't have the confidence to do it. Whereas later on, um, and you see this in crisis situations, for example, I mean, you will have noticed it yourself, now that you're a boss and you go into the room and something's going on, you can be cool, calm and collected when everyone else is sort of rushing around. And it's because you already know how to do the job. So you've, you've got the headspace now to stand back, look and be a bit more critical about it. And I think it's the same with leadership as well. So learn how to do your day job because it will just it will it will help you you know you'll have space in your head afterwards that doesn't mean to say that you shouldn't that you only do that but um, because I think as you go through I mean we're leaders every single day in the OR every single day you know if the anesthetist having a grumpy day so does everybody else it affects everyone I mean really we are the glue that holds the whole OR together and makes it a, a happy place that sings along or otherwise everyone's walking around on eggshells because you know they don't know if you're going to get grumpy about something or not you and the surgeon are you know hackles raised so I think we're very very important in that role and so for the young for young ones be confident in your day job because that will give you headspace to um, you know to take on a leadership role if you get asked to do something take it on unless unless you I mean clearly if you've got tiny babies or something um, you might not be able to do it or elderly parents or something you know so everyone's different but if you can do it because the more you say okay I'll try that the more the doors open to you to um, to, to do it and also if it's a very specific thing and this may happen later on um, you may need specific skills actually to um, to, to gain, to do a job, depending on what it is. One of the very first things I did was I did a project management um, sort of two-day, three-day thing because I've got a very short attention span, so I get bored, bored very easily. And so I just, I just, just, give me, just give me what I need to know and I'll build on it as I go along kind of thing. And that was amazing because I learned the language of projects. I learned um, who all these people were, what does a charter mean, what does a sponsor do, what does a champion do, all of those kind of things. So so that you have some basic skills which gives you confidence to take something on um, and I think the other thing about it depending on what your leadership role is you have to understand yourself you really do need to know what presses your buttons um, and so and you so so that requires some self-discovery and that you know you you gradually learn that as you go along um, and also if you if you're in a role where you're managing people no matter what it is, I think that um, every single interaction you have is an opportunity to build trust or, sadly, to withdraw from the from the uh, bank account of trust. Um, and so, and if you don't get it right, you can acknowledge you didn't get it right and try better the next time and just keep on going because you will get better at it. And it's really hard for most of us to actually get it right. And you still, I still don't, you know, make mistakes all the time. But um, it's it's really important. So know yourself, um, understand what pushes your button so that you don't react. Um, and then just have a couple of key strategies, I think, when you get into a, perhaps get into a conflict situation. Dep depends what the leadership role is. You know, sometimes it may be as simple as just taking on 
um, something needs to be fixed in the department and doing that. But you soon learn you have to work with people no matter what it is that you do. And that's the crux of the matter. Now, you and I are having internet problems, so we can't actually see each other. But if you could see me, you would see that I'm half nodding along with everything you say and half just absolutely inspired by the content that you're saying. One of the things you just said that I think just rings so true is the power of admitting when you don't get things right or just having some humility to concede that perhaps when you were younger things were you know really challenging or you struggled to, when you first got up to chair a session or um, you know perhaps that in this you know first interaction you could have handled things better and it's just I've one of been my, my key lessons in the last few years has been that power of just being real and and, and humble um, and open um, it's just the most wonderful way to build relationships um, and the other thing you mentioned before that I think is so true is that in, in leadership roles within anesthesia, we it's not there's not a hierarchy. We are all specialists, and you're just wearing the hat um, of leadership. So, how did you develop your confidence and voice to be a leader in the profession amongst all of your colleagues? <laughs> Yes, it's it's interesting, isn't it? My it really I, I find it interesting because you may find this hard to believe, but my natural tendency is not actually to be the center of attention. I dislike it intensely, um, and if if I can persuade someone else to get up and make a speech, I would. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it does become easier with with practice and with with time. So, um, yeah, I think you you just you just take on. You just take on roles as you go. And it's important, I think, to stretch yourself just a little bit. And so stuff that scared you absolutely witless right at the beginning no longer scares you by the time you get to the end. And that's just repetition and practice. And it's the same with everything. It's a it's a skill the same way, you know, learning how to put, do a block or putting in an epidural. Just keep on trying, keep on trying. And you think you're doing it the same way each time and just tiny little adjustments in the way you approach people or whatever it is that you're doing makes a difference. One of the things I, I realized pretty soon or pretty early on is to try not to get defensive because when you put so much stuff into your um, or, or work into your pet project, you 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 certainly you've got skin in the game big time. And so if if people are questioning or um, or or, or pr what you see is being critical about it it's very easy to get defensive and that just gets everybody's backs up because no one's a winner then you know it becomes a zero-sum game and you're busy defending yourself instead of seeing that actually this person probably has a point about something um it may you may not agree with it but you have to understand it and so i, I sometimes find or i i always think i always number one i always try and see the best the best of people um, if I possibly can, even the most annoying people, they they serve a function, um, even if it's and and so if you try if you're working say on a project with for some with people or you're leading people and you want a particular outcome, and people are kicking up and being difficult about it, well. Sometimes you just got to think to yourself, well, you know what, we want the same thing at the end, and they've just got a rubbish strategy of getting there. And once, once you sort of think, okay, we all want the same thing, then the next step is to say, all right, what is motivating this person? 
So if there's an angry response about something, it's always because <clears throat> that individual is afraid of something. And it may be fear that, that they don't have the skills to do it or fear that they will lose face in some way. Um, or So there's the scarf model, you know, so it's either your status will be challenged in some way or um, you'll lose your autonomy, uh, you know, of course there's finances of course, but it, it's always those kind of things. The patterns are very, very similar. And so um, I think understanding where people are coming from just allows you to take a step back and in a way to take the parent role as in most of us don't really react if the if the kid comes and you know tells you you're being mean and they hate you, you know, because you know whatever it is that you're doing is the is the right thing, um, and then you quietly talk and half an hour later you best of friends and they give you a big hug, so it's a, it's a similar kind of thing uh, with with people. You just got to under you try your best to understand where they're coming from. Gosh, I think that's so true, and it's been one of my light bulb moments as a parent. My oldest is eight, is realizing that actually all of these things that we employ in interacting with our children is just so applicable to all humans. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's parenting, but a, a nice, kind, benevolent parent you know, <laughs> that that wants you to that that wants you to succeed. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um. Speaking about vulnerability, I wonder if there has been any time during your many leadership roles that was a particularly vulnerable moment for you or a challenge that you that was, you know, particularly difficult to overcome? Oh, I think there's there've been many really. Um it's hard to pick out one particular thing because if I describe it to you then um the people involved will know what I'm sort of talking about or that I might be, you know, mm-hmm. so I don't want to go into any specific thing. But but I've, I can tell you I've stuffed it up many times. Um, but I hope that uh, once I've stuffed it up and usually got a smack on the paw from, you know, sort of virtual smack on the chops from that person or people or group or whatever, I've gone away and thought, you know what, actually these people have got a point. And so, you know, trying to introduce some some change or something and then you go retreat into your cave and you cross it first and then you consider what they have to say and you realize actually you know what these people are right Um, and the best thing to do is to go back and say look I'm really sorry I didn't quite get it and I think I now understand and then try and then at that point um, try and, and describe back to them their position so one of the things to do is if you want to introduce a change, um, if you go to people that you want to change and you tell them, look, this is not working, it's wrong for the following reasons, and this is a great solution that I've got, all that happens is the people that you're talking to retreat back, sit with their arms crossed and say, you don't understand, you have not walked a mile in my shoes, you're not listening to me. And you, when they retreat back there and are not listening and refuse to do what you want, sit there thinking, these people, they are change averse, they can't look outside their own little boundaries, they're just patch protecting or they're just protecting something or other and they just, you know, stuck in their ways. And so nobody's listening to each other. Whereas if you go and you talk to, you produce the same thing and you, you just, first of all, you have to describe the problem that you're trying to solve. Okay, X is a problem. And then you go and you describe absolutely everything that's fantastic about the way it's being done as it's currently being done. And then you describe absolutely everything that is wrong with what you want to do 
And then, when you've finished that, you can then describe the things that are wrong with the current model and describe what is good about your model. It's called the polarity model. And I can tell you that that works because people then feel that they've actually been heard and that they, they're not defensive and they're not shutting down when you're talking to them. And it takes time. This, this isn't a one conversation thing. Sometimes you have to go back and back and back until everybody finally gets there because I really like to get consensus. I'm not the kind of person that can just say, I'm the boss, this is the rule, you will now comply. I mean, there are occasions when you might have to do that. Um, you know, I suppose if it's a big crisis or uh, COVID, you know, that kind of thing, that does require some degree of, uh, you know, being autocratic. Uh, but most of the time in our daily lives, I never want to think about COVID again, um, you don't have to do that. And it's much better to take people with you. You know, if there's a if there's a shark in on the uh, in the sea, you're going to tell everyone you will not get into that water because you're going to get eaten by the shark. You have to be very directive and very clear. But you know, you don't have to do that if just because there there are sharks in the sea, at some point, a long way away. You you know, you then say, look, the water's warm here. Go and swim in Antarctica. There aren't so many there. It's cold. Now, you stepped down from your role as Director of Perioperative Services at Auckland City Hospital to focus on your presidency yeah. role. And taking on these roles does come with a lot of volunteering of your time and then obviously sacrifice and compromise and a shifting of priorities and shifting of the deck chair sometimes. What process did you go through in order to find magical extra time for your extra <laughs> responsibilities? Um, well, I think you have to be clear on what you want, Morgan, actually. I think you need to be, you need to be absolutely clear sure that that is what you want to do because presidency of the college as you say um you do you do get some time to do it um the hospital uh, gives you time to do that uh, not not for free ANSCA um ANSCA pays for some of your time directly to the hospital when you're in this role but you can't i i director of the peer up services is an is a massive massive job big role and i didn't think i'd have the headspace to do both um, I just didn't think so. It, it's also, in some ways, it would be a conflict, really, um, because, you know, we have st standards and policies and rules and regulations, professional standards from ANSCA, and you can't, on the one hand, be the person who says, okay, these are the professional standards, and then the person who's pushing back to say, well, is it really that much? Do we really have to do that? Because I'm... I'm trying to, you know, struggle struggle to get the deck chairs on the move the deck chairs on the Titanic as in my management role, and also I thought um, I'd although my role had changed over many many years till I finally became director. It was um, I actually did think it was time for someone else to um, to take it on, because I found that some of the problems were just recycling themselves. And also, we've got a lot of very, very good people coming through the ranks. And I thought, you know what, it's it's rude to keep on two roles. Some people have done that. Um, in you know, presidents past have done that. I didn't think that was fair to the department to have somebody who was focused on the college and not uh, not there half the time. Um, and to and so other, some people have said to me, well, why don't you just hand it on for two years while you're the president and then you could go back, which is very flattering for me. I mean, how kind to, to say that. But, you know, what I thought was, 
if someone takes on the role and they put their heart and soul into it, how can you rest it back after two years? I mean, why would why would they want to? And if they don't, and they're a caretaker person, why do you want why do you want a seat warmer? You don't. You want somebody who's going to grow the department and who's got fresh ideas and and you know brings breathes new life into it. And I think that's a good thing. I think change. I don't. I don't mean to say that you have to change every five seconds because people like stability. People don't actually like change. But nevertheless, um, I think new ideas um, with good from good people who are you know got things to things that they've been thinking about. I think is a good thing. There's enough room for everyone. Honestly, there's more than enough to do. It's so incredibly true. There's more than enough to do. Um, and and so when you made that shift. What did your week look like as the director of Periop versus a week as the president of the college? Um, well, the the director week was five days a week, um, and clinical days were Monday were Wednesdays, always Wednesdays, and sometimes Mondays, apart from liver on call and uh, general on call, and whenever they were short. And the rest of the days were corporate days, in particularly a Tuesday. A Tuesday would start with a quarter to seven meeting in the morning and end at a, with a 7.30 meeting in, in, the, in the evening. So that was full on. So I used to do my week, so I'd be in theatre often on Monday or otherwise preparing, because, you know, there's a lot of prep. You can't just turn up to a meeting um, and sit there playing on your phone, you know. There's work to do before and work to do afterwards. And I had an, I had a number of direct reports, so I had, I think it was 10 or 11 direct reports, which was actually far too many, but that required one-on-one -on -one meetings either every week or every two weeks, depending on what projects and things they were busy with, whatever their issues with. And then, of course, I had to have the meetings that I had to attend as well with the CEO and the leadership, the senior leadership group within the within the DHB. So you can imagine there was a lot of meeting time. And then in between that, there was business case writing and going around and, you know, can you speak at this and say hello to this one who's retiring and all of that sort of stuff. So that was a lot. I used to try and make Fridays my day for um, uh, plotting and planning, my own personal plotting and planning. Um, and uh, catching up on all the stuff, but preparing really, for, sort of ending off the last week, the last few tasks, and then preparing for the next week. So that was the director job. And then with the college, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday were clinical days, became clinical days, and Thursday, Friday were college days. And partly that's because all the college meetings are angled towards the end of the week and the travel as well, so that it's less disruptive for the department. And again, I did all the liver on call and all the general on call, so it's very, very busy. That said, my department was really amazing. They supported me so well because I was forever on the phone. I was forever talking to the press. I was forever having to attend college meetings during the day because we try very, very hard not to. Um, there are some committee meetings which have to happen at night, but we try to do most of the stuff during daylight hours because otherwise the ANSCA staff are just forever um, working out of hours and given the the fact that we've got WA which is at the moment five hours behind us um, you know it's it's really quite hard and then when you've got to talk to Hong Kong and Canada and fit everybody onto the same Zoom you can just imagine I mean the CEO is honestly I think he walks on water he's amazing um, but it's utterly exhausting and of course as president you're dragged along with that so the department is really very very good to me, they um, used to try and give me a trainee so that if I had to, a senior one, so if I had to duck out and take a phone call, whatever I could, and if I needed extra non-clinical time, they gave it to me. But it was full on, 
And even though the designated days were Thursday, Friday, I was continually talking to fellows, distressed people, um, angry people, all of that stuff. And then, of course, there was COVID on top of it. Can you imagine? Hilarious. Now when I look back. Yeah. Mm. So that's that's kind of the week. But now um, I quite like those two days of college stuff. So now I do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday clinical days. Thursday and Friday are sort of semi-theoretically free days. But of course they fall now of college stuff all over again, but just at a different in a different way. And then, I mean, I imagine once you step out of the immediate past president role, you will have some time on your hands mm. and things will pivot again. Yeah. What do you have on the horizon next? I don't know, actually. I think in some ways what I'd really like to do is just chill and actually decide the next phase of my career. I mean, there's so much stuff that I'm dabbling in. I mean, I've been trying to get perioperative medicine off the ground honestly, for 20 years. Can you believe it? 20 years, and we're finally getting there. <laughs> and so now, also, with with the passage of time, I don't I don't feel necessarily that I've got anything to prove in the OR anymore. So I'm very, very happy to uh, to get into the perioperative space. I think I've, I actually do think I've got a lot to offer there. And it's stuff that um, a lot of the department, particularly younger members at the moment, aren't particularly interested in. It's not that they're disinterested, it's just that they've got, you know, other things that they want to do. So I'm very happy to get into that kind of space. And if I can still contribute um, college-wise, of course I'd love to. Um, because, you know, even though you're only on committees and things for 12 years, and it's good to refresh, you don't exactly turn into a pumpkin after that. So, um, yeah, so what I'll just, if anyone ever wants anything... I'm always the first to say that's fine. <laughs> I'll do that. What do, what do you need? Yeah. I've got one last question for you that I um, think we've sort of alluded to with with your sort of, you know, talking about Australia and how it is different. I think you would probably be the most well-versed anaesthetist in Aotearoa in terms of the differences. What do you see as being the biggest challenge for anaesthetists on both sides of the Tasman um, moving forward? I'm going to think about that a little bit. I think... Um, I think uh, the economic situation on both sides of the Tasman is a problem. So I think uh, the money is going to become more and more important. And they, they're they going to try, I think, probably to look at alternative workforces. They keep talking about this thing called new models of care, which as far as I can see mm-hmm. is just let's just dumb it down and, and make it cheap. That's what that means. Um, because, mm-hmm. you know, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul again. Um, with trying to find somebody else to to do the job. So it becomes task substitution as opposed to um, task delegation, which I think there is absolutely a place for that. So there's that on both sides. I think the Australians, I I do think one of the problems that they have is their um, state-based system as opposed to federal-based system. I mean, they've got so Mm. many more layers that they have to deal with and, you know, work on this one and that one to, um, to try and achieve what they want. As an individual anaesthetist, it's been difficult up until now for um, people, well, becoming more difficult to get a staff hospital job, which is what we all have, even if it's part-time. Um, and that that gives people a lot of um, just consolidation. So when you're newly, newly fellowed, to be able to do that for a little while, I think, consolidates it. So I think we've got a whole lot of people who are anxious, who effectively, if you think about it, are working zero-hour contracts because they run around to many different hospitals in a week, you know, half day here, one case there, another case somewhere else, trying to make ends meet. And I think 
that's stressful for them. Um, mm-hmm. I think Australia has got a big uh, problem with providing care, decent care into rural and remote areas, far more than we have. Um, so that's hard. And I think both countries have got a problem um, with equity and equality. I think that's um, which we all desperately want to uh, to do something about. And we're just we're floundering around a little bit because we're not exactly too sure how to do it. Um, but but we all recognise, I think, that it needs to be done. But, you know, we're, we're quite similar in some ways. I mean, everyone's so good natured and so wanting to do the right thing. Uh, but yeah, we've got we do have different different issues, and and of course Australia does have more money because they dig it up, and so you know we have not mm-hmm. done that quite quite literally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yes, <laughs> but uh, it really resonates with me, especially about how we actually do have so much in common, and just reflect on that wonderful time that we recently had at the Congress in Wellington all being together again and looking forward to being together again in Sydney for the first time since 2019 for the ANSCA meeting which will just be wonderful and a bit surreal I think. I'm so excited Um, yeah and and the CSE I have heard nothing but absolute praise and delight from people that I've spoken to what a fabulous conference it was so well done Morgan Mm. and you've got a big job coming on now as well and you'll be awesome at it as well as you said big shoes to to fill when you did your hand over things but nevertheless you'll bring something new and different and that's what's so exciting about it really. Well, thank you, and very big shoes to fill with um, from dear Dr. Sheila Hart, who has just, like you, worked through the pandemic, and it's been just such a huge amount of work without some of the really delightful benefits of spending (laughs) time with people and establishing relationships, Um, although you try via Zoom, it's just not quite the same, is it? No, it's really, really Um, not. It's awful. Now, when you you know when you have to introduce yourself, I, I used to tell people I, I came from New Zoomland. <laughs> <laughs> and probably in the middle of the night because you're talking to somebody in WA or Yes. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, yeah. I have to say that I just have found our coordinator today so inspiring. I'm feeling full of ideas. I'm gonna listen back and write down some wonderful thoughts that you've had and just really inspiring me and thinking about what kind of leader I want to be as I embark on my leadership um, over the next couple of years. So I just thank you from the bottom of my heart for having some time to chat with me today. And I know your thoughts and advice will be so valuable to so many anaesthetists, whether they're in just day-to-day leadership roles in the operating room or um, currently or thinking about stepping into leadership roles, because it's what we just do so often as Mm. anaesthetists. So thank you so much for your time. It has just been incredibly valuable. Thank you so much, Morgan. It's been it's been really wonderful. Thank you for taking the time to do it as well. I know with you with small children and now a very, very busy role. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you so no. much. It was great. Thank you. Thank you. you.